Hello, this is the newly renamed Everyday Injustice podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the last 10 years, as Vanguard Court Watch, we have operated court watches in California, San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? To shine a light on everyday injustice in the court system, and now more broadly through criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police, and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on a national level. So we have Elizabeth Kim, who's going to be on our show today. She is the president of the National Lawyers Guild in Sacramento. The NLG has chapters across the U.S. organizing and litigating on local issues. They were founded in 1937 as the United States' first racially integrated bar association to advocate for the protection of constitutional, human, and civil rights. Their aim is to bring together all those who recognize the importance of safeguarding and extending the rights of workers, women, LGBT people, farmers, people with disabilities, and people of color, upon whom the welfare of the entire nation depends. So we're going to welcome Elizabeth to our show. How are you doing, Elizabeth? Hi. I'm doing great, David. Thank you for having me. So you have a pretty interesting background. Um, so can <laughs> yeah. you tell us uh, about your felony arrest a number of years ago? Sure. So uh, this is actually the first time that I'm actually publicly telling this story. Um, I think that a lot of people on my social media know this story, but I haven't actually been on any kind of news syndicate uh, to talk about this. But I think the timing is, is ripe for this story. And um, the first um, thing, the, the very first thing that prompted me to go to law school is my incident in 2004 when I was initially arrested um, by Santa Clara Police Department. And um, my friend was driving and had gotten pulled over, um, and he had had a few beers. And so it was a like a uh, he had swerved a little bit, been pulled over, and was asked if there was anything illegal in the vehicle. And I had uh, less than an eighth of marijuana in my backpack. And at the time, I was 19 years old and a student at Academy of Art University studying film. And um, before I had a chance to speak, my friend had said, you know, my friend Elizabeth here has uh, marijuana in her backpack. And so before I could say two words, I was taken under custody or arrested. And then um, the DA filed charges of intent to sell because I had a very small scale in the backpack along with the with the eighth of marijuana. Um, this was my first felony charge ever, um, my first criminal charge ever, actually. And I fought it for two long years and developed a really close relationship with the public defender at the time. Um, I was not able to afford uh, representation, private representation. And I learned there and then that I was very much at a disadvantage. I didn't know about any of my rights. Um, I didn't know anything about anything. Um, and I saw that this was a, a huge disadvantage for me, and I eventually took a plea deal um, to plead guilty to um, felony intent to sell at the age of 19. I was promptly kicked out of art school at the time at Academy of Art. Um, I was also diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, which is a type of cancer. So a lot of things were going negatively for me at that time. Um, 
And uh, just to make a long story short, I ended up serving um, six of the nine months that I was sentenced. And I vowed before I was remanded to serve my sentence that I would go to law school and learn, learn my rights and help others. And to that goal, I've stayed true. Um, it was a very hard and long journey getting here today, but um, only getting this far, I can tell this story confidently. And upon um, release um, in 2006, I've done nothing but focus on the law and learning my rights and then advocating for and protecting others' rights. And here I am today since that incident. Wow, that's incredible. So, so a an intent to sell marijuana, and and you end up having to take a plea agreement, which is a felony plea agreement. Was there a reason why it ended up being a felony plea agreement rather than a misdemeanor? Yeah. So the DA, um, and I'm not sure if a lot of people know this, but Santa Clara County uh, in 2004 they were enforcing a very tough crackdown on um, drug cases. So they had their own uh, separate drug court, and um, there were many raids and a lot of um, arrests and convictions that were happening. It was like, I think if anybody looked back and if you talked to the DAs and the public defenders that were um, involved in those cases at the time, they had this program called RCP, which stood for Regimented Correct, um, Correctional Program. And it was a paramilitary program, and they were huge on this. And so any any small amount of drugs found on a person, they were pushing for um, intent to sell if possible because a lot of people were Prop 36 um, eligible and there was a huge surge of that. And so I believe, um, and I'm pretty much proof of this, that they were very set on sending people to prison for any drug-related convictions at that time. And so, of course, having such a small amount um, and being having no priors and being so young, even the judge stopped me and said, what happened, Elizabeth? You don't seem like the type to be mixed up in this crowd. And um, and I just looked at the judge like, are you serious? You, should, you, should, you shouldn't be <laughs> convicting of a felony right now. Um, and so the, the public defender, um, Ash Kalra, at the time, he's now an assembly member, you know, kind of felt sorry for me. And he said, I'm really sorry the DA is being very difficult, but they were not backing down. Um, threatening me with a prison, uh, with a prison sentencing for having literally less than an eighth of marijuana in my backpack, but because of the scale, they were put, they were set on charging me with the felony. Wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about your public defender, and you actually f- think highly of the public defender. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, even though I ended up uh, getting convicted and. It, this is something that I have to explain for the rest of my life. And I want to get into a little bit about the effects of expungement um, when we get an opportunity to, but um, I do know that I learned a lot from this particular public defender. He ended up um, quitting very shortly after he took my case and he ended up running for city council. And then he served for city council for two terms. And then he ended up running for assembly and winning. And he's the first Indian American um, assembly member, but I I applaud him for, treating me with compassion and understanding and empathy, whereas everyone else in the justice, criminal justice system at that time treated me like I was, you know, a druggie, um, a criminal, um, and I was none of those things, but he always treated me with dignity and respect, and I learned something from that, and I told myself, if I ever make it out of the situation and um, serve the public, I will remember to be like him. 
Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so when did you decide to go to law school? While I was fighting this case. <laughs> I remember uh, I went to Barnes and Nobles at the time and after this particular public defender was assigned to me, as many people know, you get uh, rotated out. So um, at each stage of the case, you'll get assigned a different public defender based on their um, schedule and, and the needs. So unfortunately, Osh didn't remain with me, and I ended up having about three other public defenders until I ended up uh, ultimately taking the plea. And during that time, I knew nothing. So I went, and because I was a college student and I uh, felt like I was somewhat educated enough to figure something out, I remember buying a criminal justice handbook um, and that it taught me very basic things like, you know, um, not having to take the stand to speak to incriminate myself. And when I brought that book with me to court, I remember all the attorneys looking at me and just looking at me like I was crazy. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, I never want to be looked at like that again. So I told myself, even with a felony, I'm going to go to law school so that I could learn this because I realized that everyone should know their rights. No one in this country should go about their lives not knowing what their rights are. That makes sense. Um, so yeah. where did you go to law school? I attended McGeorge School of Law very proudly. Um, I, I attended there while I was working under the administration of Insurance Commissioner Dave Jones. Um, I attended night school uh, for four years while I worked as a policy advisor to Dave Jones, Insurance Commissioner Jones, and then I attended McGeorge at night. And... Did you uh, take the bar exam? I did. And? <laughs> and thankfully passed. And um, so here we are um, as president of National Lawyers Guild. We're, you know, um, advocating for other people who are at a disadvantage due to their lack of knowledge on their own rights. And I'm very proud to stand with National Lawyers Guild on advocating for those who have to deal with police misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct. Um, and it's so important for us to know what our rights are um, in order to protect them. So, so just for people's understanding, you're able to be a lawyer and a practicing lawyer even though you have a felony conviction? Yeah, and that's the thing that's really difficult for a lot of people and for me as well is that the Moral Character Board at the State Bar um, takes into consideration those things. And it's not just the State Bar, but it, there's a stigma. And this is the part where I want to get into talking about expungements. Um, expungements can only help you in uh, very limited circumstances. Um, so what it does is it allows for you to legally state that you have never been convicted of a felony when you are applying for a, a standard job. However, if you are applying for a licensure of any kind um, or a professional uh, position where they require a, a more thorough background um, investigation, then uh, which, which means basically any time that you need to get life scanned, there's nothing that you can hide or legally deny um, despite the expungement. And uh, then they have discretion in exercising whether they can... Um, they can uh, hire you. And so um, there's a very grueling process that one has to go through with a felony, obviously, on your record. Um, and they can ultimately just deny you. So most recently, um, and this is the first time I'm talking about this publicly as well, but 
I was hired by the state bar for the uh, the trial, the chief trial counsel's office. They had a nice corner office for me with a great view of the Bay Bridge with my name plaque on the front. And, um, and I'm there working as trial counsel for the state bar. Um, and then they had me do the live scan after the hire. And so when the, the live scan came in, they basically terminated me without notice. Um, it was infuriating, uh, especially because if I've already passed um, moral character and if I've you know, dealt with the state bar at, on a separate level, but that I'm being hired at their office and then being terminated, there's that stigma, there's that, that discretion, there's that discrimination that goes with my record. And so this is, I feel like, something that I can't escape. And it's very frustrating. And so I don't, I don't, I don't look at that as just um, in terms of myself, but I look at that in terms of how other people are being impacted by such discretion and such discrimination. And it, it's definitely something that we have to fix overall for society because I'll be fine, but there are people out there who cannot make a living and cannot survive because they don't have access to um, jobs and education and housing. They, look, they do your background sometimes for approving, um, you know, renting, rental agreements as well. So I want to I want to back up a step. How old were you when when all this happened? I was nineteen. So at the age of nineteen, you're caught with less than an eighth of marijuana, which, by the way, is now legal. Uh, you happen to have a scale on you. Um, they end up um, being determined to charge you with a felony, um, and and these days um, you can probably get that reduced at least to a misdemeanor, if not expunged, right? Correct. Um, and so it, it, that and was... And it was a, expunged. And it was expunged. So yes, it was expunged 12 years ago. So something that happened 15 years ago uh, and is expunged and is no longer a felony, even if you did it now... Uh, <laughs> is preventing you from from working in, in your field uh, when right. you've done nothing since then, right? I, I'm assuming. I've done nothing since then. Um, that, that's just incredible. I mean, I, I, I think the problem is, is the bar association more than anything else here. Right. And I'm, I was reluctant to talk about this because I'm not, you know, that's like, you know, calling out the state bar is like really waging war on yourself, but I think it is important for us to discuss this as a systemic issue. I don't, I don't, I, I want to believe, and there are people at the state bar that I'm very close with. There are actual pro, former DAs there that are my personal friends. And so it's not so, and this is my, and this is what I teach in my social justice course at American River College that I just started teaching this semester. Um, it's not the people that are racist or discriminatory. It's the system. And the way that they've designed this is that they've written into their laws and their policies that discretionary portion where any person's life scan that comes back, when it hits certain factors, there's not a human mind or heart making these decisions. It's like a checklist that they're going down. And when they see a felony, even if it's expunged, they just automatically eliminate you. And that's the systemic design that we have to fix. And so 
you know, people will tell you all day, oh, I understand, I understand. But if you have a system that's written that way, that systemic design has to be rectified because it's, like I said, I'll be fine. I bounce back. I, I work now at Quinn and Emanuel, which is the number one litigation firm in the world. Um, but, you know, other people out there who don't have the advantages that I have, um, which, by the way, I fought very hard for to have these advantages, but um, there are others who are much more severely disadvantaged than I am who cannot survive, who cannot have a job because of their record. Yeah. I, and that simply shouldn't be the case. You know, um, not quite a similar story, but an interesting follow-up. Uh, a, um, my, my wife had worked for a labor union, and okay. in 2006, they went to Houston, Texas, uh, and uh, mobilized to unionize the janitors down there. And part of how yeah. they did it was they blockaded the street, and so they end up getting arrested and she ends up spending three days in jail. Um, and, wow. and they end up, uh, you know, uh, charging her with a misdemeanor. And uh, I think she um, took a plea agreement eventually. And so she has a misdemeanor charge. So three years yeah. later, uh, we're trying to get uh, uh, adopt a child. And we got to get uh, certified by the state. For that misdemeanor conviction, we're talking a misdemeanor and we're talking a work-related misdemeanor, we had to uh, apply to the Department of Justice and they had to do a waiver. And fortunately, they did it. But, I, you know, I always imagine, wow. uh, you know, what it would take uh, if you got an actual misdemeanor. I mean, you know, anything from drunk driving. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. And the thing that's crazy, David, is that when the way the state bar treated me, they treated me like I was a leper. Like they didn't give me any notice. They literally called me after I had gone home. They deactivated my badge before I le uh, left for the day. And then they gave me a call saying, don't come back, which didn't even give me the opportunity to gather my own things. And I just don't understand how why they would treat a fellow lawyer like that. Um, for what? And... Um, for something you what did when you were a that? kid, literally. I mean, yeah, it's just so it's baffling to me, um, and and the fact that what is the point of expunging anything if that if that's such a factor today? I'm not really. Well, also, I'm trying so hard to be. It's legal now. Hard. What you did then is now legal. So they're yeah, they're, they're punishing you for for doing something that is now legal. That's. There, there's something wrong here. I, I'm sorry uh, to be harping on that. I know there's other stuff that you wanted to talk about, but you know, to me that, that that's no, just ridiculous. Worth, yeah, it's worth the emphasis here because, mind you, in my so since I've graduated, I mean, I'm sorry, since I've been released from uh, from incarceration in 2006, I've done nothing besides working for the legislature for the last 15 years. I've worked for two assembly members. Um, I've worked. I mean, I've had a six-month um, externship at the public defender's office. All of these jobs required background searches. They've all cleared me. I've never failed a background, and I've never been terminated from a position ever since since all of this has happened. And so for me to be treated that way by the very entity <laughs> that I'm, I've dedicated my life to serving was just such a – was just very shocking. Um, but I've moved on. I've, I've bounced back and I'm going to be positive about it. But 
this is the story that I want to share and the message I want to share to others so that we can advocate harder for this because there are people out there who are suffering more and are dealing with these stigmas. And we just have to change the title on this because especially when it comes to nonviolent drug offenses, um, granted, I'm not a drug addict, but there are people who are addicted to drugs that need help. And simply being sentenced um, isn't going to solve that problem and, mo and most certainly is not going to solve the stigma that comes with them uh, having records and then ultimately how are they su supposed to survive? All right. They're not well, able to get hired at any position for employment. So, so let's move on here. Um, yeah. So can you talk about your work uh, for NLG and kind of sure. the issues that matter to you? Yes, yeah, so um, I remember I first joined National Lawyers Guild in law school. Um, I remember Claire White was one of the founders for Sacramento, and she grabbed my attention immediately because of her firecracker spirit and just her whole personality was very riveting. Um, but more than that, you know, the principles of National Lawyers Guild and the, the rich history of how the story of how four New York attorneys in 1937 in response to labor labor uh, law violations and how disadvantaged people were uh, for workers' rights. It's that's what spurred this whole thing on. And since they since they created this um, organization, it it literally like wildfires spread throughout the East Coast within two weeks. We had chapters in every state on the East Coast within two weeks. Um, and since then, every decade of this country's history, we've had pro bono attorneys rising up and fighting and using their law degrees and their legal knowledge to um, advocate for and fight for the underdog and those people that are disadvantaged. So I relate to every bit of that. And so since I've been um, involved since about 2012, well, it's been seven years already, um, we've seen here in Sacramento um, a whole lot more than I ever thought I would um, as far as mass, mass arrests, um, all kinds of police misconduct. I've seen, as we, as we know famously, the Fab 84 arrest, um, the Stefan Clark shooting, the Joseph Mann shooting. Um, and I've seen people literally line up on these so-called uh, so front lines where my cohorts I know and believe in my heart that they are ready to die for this cause. Um, and that cause being fighting for human rights over property interests. And I've both worked in the legislature, the government. Um, I've worked on public policy issues and have worked with a lot of these people who create these policies. But I've also been on the street fighting with activists, walk, marching with activists and trying to protect their right to First Amendment free speech. And so having been on, you know, on both sides and then also having been incarcerated myself, I know that everyone means well, but the execution of of our intent is not always the best. And so um, National Lawyers Guild wants to play the liaison and, you know, try to do our best to protect those rights, but also try to implement stronger policies because we do know that at the end of the day, we have to work together in order to accomplish these goals. Um, and so that's where we're at right now. And that's why I think that, you know, um, a lot of the entities have to recognize that we cannot be enemies with one another. We have to be able to work together in order to solve a lot of these problems. So 
what types of issues really drive you on this? Is it police issues? Yeah, because um, I've dealt with the police uh, personally. And I, you know, I want to add that um, I, I try really hard not to be biased because I have an uncle who's a chief of police in South Korea. I also have a cousin who's a, a district attorney in South Korea. Um, and I have conservative parents who have Republican values. And I'm kind of the black sheep of my family. Um, but I don't, I don't consider myself to be a liberal to be um, for liberals sake. It's more, I'm always trying to think about what is, what is fair and what drives us. And for me, it's always about just having a humanistic approach to looking at things because I just feel like the systems are written by entities who tend to um, minimize the value of, of a human life. Uh, for the greater good of the system. And I just don't see where there's um, areas in our system that are dedicated specifically to preserving human rights. And that's why National Lawyers Guild is so integral and important to having in our community, because if we're not monitoring the police, then who is? You know, if we're not following them jailhouse support, then how could they afford legal representation? And at the end of the day, and I relate to this, when we're experiencing our most difficult uh, times in our lives, it's it's so important to have someone who knows your rights and who can help you, who actually cares just enough to be there and say, hey, look, I care about your situation. How can I help you? And that's what's missing in our system. So why did the Stefan Clark shooting really seem to touch a lot of nerves in the community. My, my opinion on that is for one, it touched me deeply because it happened on my brother's birthday. <laughs> um, but that's just my personal thing. But I think for a lot of people, it's that uh, when, when all of the shootings and police misconduct cases started happening throughout the country, I mean, granted, this has been going on forever. We're just now getting the advantage of social media to spread it um, a lot more. Um, but uh, Sacramento insisted that this was not a Sacramento problem. And I remember when the Philando Castillo situation happened, I was just, I was just up in arms. I was livid. I couldn't breathe. I was very upset. Um, and of course, you know, al- along the lines of all the other incidents that were happening nationally. And so when Sacramento's activist community started to band together and say, you know, we need to do something about this issue, Sacramento's, uh, government leadership insisted that this was not a problem in Sacramento. And then the Joseph Manish um, situation happened. And then the Stefan Clark shooting happened. And it was by far one of the worst things that we've ever seen. Um, and the, the treatment of the case from the very beginning and all it, throughout its lifeline has been astonishing to say the least. Um, I don't mean to call out Mayor Daryl Steinberg, but I've followed that man and have been a fan of his um, as a public servant since he was um, a, an attorney for SEIU. Um, and so I've followed his whole tenure throughout, you know, all the way to the Senate pro tem. And then to see when, when he got elected to the mayoral seat, I was very excited to see how he would handle it because I had a lot of faith in him um, because I believed him to be, you know, progressive and to care about the little people. And uh, when I saw that they were threatening banning 
people from expressing themselves in light of what's happening on the Stefan Court case. That was just hugely disappointing. Because at the very least, we should be allowing people to have a space to express how they're feeling about how the community is in pain. And so I've had to step in and give remarks um, on behalf of NLG on reminding them that, hey, you know, they have a constitutional right to be here to express themselves. And starting to ban them is infringing on that First Amendment right to do that. And it's, he's, an, he's an attorney, so he should know that. And he, he fought for the little guys himself, so he should know that. And um, granted, he's done some good things, too, um, in terms of working with um, Devante Clark. And I've seen some effort on his part. But what would have been more powerful is if he stood with us, you know, instead of behind that desk, if he came away from that desk and stood with the community. Um, and I say this because when um, Trump sent his AG, um, Jeff Sessions, to Sacramento, that was the first time that I saw Kevin DeLeon, Dave Jones, Fiona Ma, and Daryl Steinberg marching with us. <laughs> and I said, what the heck are these people doing here? And I realized because the CNN cameras are out here. And that really upset me because you, so you do know how to come out here and put your boots to the ground and, and stand with us. But what drove them to do that were, were the CNN cameras. And that was very offensive to me. Um, because if they cared, I would have liked to, to see them with their boots on the ground when all of that first went down. That would have been powerful. But that didn't happen. Yeah. So, so one, of the, one of the other cases uh, that bothers me is uh, you mentioned him, Joseph Mann. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in that case, uh, there are kind of two angles that really uh, irk me. One is the dash cam conversation oh, yeah. uh, where, where the cop basically says, yeah, run that guy over. And then the other thing is that those cops were even cops. I mean, they had long histories of misconduct and they're still officers. Exactly. Those, these are the types of things that I'm talking about that are systemically flawed. <laughs> and it's, I feel like sometimes I'm screaming at the top of my lungs and it doesn't seem to change anything. Like I, I've attended countless, countless uh, justice reform, criminal justice reform panels and discussions. And everyone loves to talk about the problem, right? We talk about how it costs more to house an inmate than it costs to provide a Harvard education. We're talking about having the, the, the largest prison population in the entire world. Uh, we're talking about the fact that, you know, it's, it's, it's just pretty much slavery in terms of the mass incarceration, the mass arrest, and um, how it's just a, a factory house of convicting cases and plea deals and the recidivism rate and all this. We're talking about all these problems. And yet, where are we finding the solutions. And um, that's where I feel like this conversation has to shift to what are we going to do about it now? And I was so glad to, to attend that prosecutorial uh, reform piece with Davis Vanguard this past weekend, because this is where we're finally getting into talking about, okay, what are some solutions? Because I've heard already so many times what the problem, what the problems are. Um, but in that particular case with Joseph Mann, those, those are very strong 
um, factors that has to be looked at. Um, when you have evidence of officers having conversations like that, where they're they're joking and but also seriously saying, "Let's run someone over." How are I just don't know how that's ground. That's not grounds for termination on that alone. Yeah, and you know the other case that that really bothers me is the Nandy King case. This is the guy who's jaywalking. He gets stopped by by an officer. They have some words, and the guy ends up beating him up over jaywalking. I saw that video. Yep, I saw that. Like I, I literally mean, beating him up. Yeah, and. And the problem here is that once again, you know, if I did that to somebody and I got caught on video, I guarantee you I'm charged with a felony and that officer is not, and there's no accountability there. Yeah. And this is what I'm saying is, um, it's almost like people don't believe us. And then when they do see the evidence, it's like, then they start making excuses. And it's because there's this culture, there's this, there's this culture of protecting the police from accountability. And it's started so long ago that it's taking a, a lot of effort to undo. And I think that's where we're at right now is that it's okay to call this out and call it out for what it is. But we just need to stay on top of it and keep calling it out. And so we need what we need to do is change the culture and not just from the people of color, but from the white um, population's perspective as well. We need everyone to call this out and not just one group or, you know, um, a, a handful of groups. But we just need everyone. And it's harder to do when we have, you know, the current presidential administration um, who, you know, glosses over this and and justifies and um, it makes excuses for, and it just kind of emboldens this idea that the police don't have to be accountable, that they have to protect themselves. And um, quite frankly, I, I just recently heard a stand up by Chris Rock who said, there are some positions, some professional jobs that cannot have bad apples. For example, you can't have pilots that are bad apples. <laughs> they have to be able to fly and they have to be able to land a plane safely. Just like that. A, a cop can't have some malicious intent to beat someone up or run someone over. They just can't. Um, and I will even say this. The state bar, as much as they discriminate against me, on one hand, I'm grateful that they at least regulate themselves. Um, because that's more than I can say about the police association. Because they refuse to acknowledge that they have a bad apple in their, in their midst and taking the measures to to eliminate those bad apples because that job requires them to not have anyone on their force who's going to be trigger happy or willing to kill or injure someone because they feel like it. And, and just uh, to, to kind of close the circle, you know, uh, and then I'll get off my soapbox, but, you know, one thing <laughs> I see a lot is, you know, when, when these things happen, everybody said, oh, you know, like you said, you know, bad apples. No, okay. this is not bad apples. This is systemic problem. And I right. guarantee you that if we see one of these things caught on tape, there's a hundred that we never saw. And I see these cops all the time on the stand and they lie, they, they deceive 
they use force when it's not even remotely necessary. I do not buy into the bad apple theory. I buy into the there is a systemic problem here theory, and we are just seeing the tip of the iceberg. I'll get off my soapbox. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I've worked on police misconduct and uh, criminal justice reform in other areas as well. I've I've worked on wrongful convictions. I'm very glad that, David, you had uh, focused, uh, put a lot of emphasis on that. I worked with the Innocence Project. My very first big uh, legislative project in law school was um, working the Ronald Cotton case. He, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was somebody who was wrongfully convicted of rape. Oh, yeah, I've read his years. book. Yeah, and I, I've met him, and that spurred me to working with um, the Innocence Project on learning about wrongful convictions. Um, and I've you know, worked with the Black Caucus, the California Black Caucus, on what we can do to remedy that situation. And I worked on um, uh, promoting best practices, changing best practices for police officers on eyewitness testimonies. Um, the psychological effects of what eyewitness testimonies and lineup, photo lineups do. I'm not sure if you knew this, but um, there are studies that's verified by um, many research entities. Um, that Innocence Project's website will give you a, a full extent of um, information on. But when a person is shown a lineup instead of a photo individually one at a time, Psychologically, you're looking for whoever looks most like the perpetrator uh, versus when you go through a photo one at a time, then you're deciding if that if the photo looks like the perpetrator or not, and you're more likely to say no if they don't look like someone. But if you're looking at a lineup of people, then you're looking for who looks most like. And so these are the types of nuances that can really, literally make or break a case and convict someone who is not the perpetrator. And when you approach the police associations with something like this, they will shut you down because they don't want to be told how to do their job. And I ran into that wall numerous times. And we're just talking about simple practices that can be tweaked. Um, it's no, it's, we're not accusing any officers of anything. We're not saying that they're not good at their jobs. We're just saying this, these are what, we're, what we found psychologically. And here's what we think might be able to help avoid wrongful conviction. But they, they refuse. They will refuse. Um, so what I wish for in the future moving forward is that all these entities have to work together to solve these problems and for everyone to have a little bit of intellectual humility. And that's what I started with teaching at my social justice course is to talk about how can we all remain intellectually humble to be open-minded to hearing about how we can do things better and I think that should be the focus for all of us moving forward um, in terms of how we elect our next president, um, how we mobilize, how we organize our, our activist um, organizations, um, and, and really problem solve as we move forward. Well, I could talk about this all day. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but I want to thank Elizabeth Kim from the National Lawyers Guild for coming on our show and talking about her experience and also broader issues of criminal justice reform. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate you and for you having me on your show. Thanks. And this has been 
everyday injustice. Thanks and join us next time.